When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, and this podcast is brought to you by Quip, the electric toothbrush. I'll have more to say about this excellent product later in the show. I'm a user myself. But if you'd like to get a jump and a discount, go to getquip.com slash QA. Our guest today is an old friend and colleague of mine. We worked together years ago in the 1990s at the Weekly Standard. He is now a poobah at the bulwark. He is Jonathan Last, Jonathan V. Last, or JVL. And let's begin with the question of that initial, the middle one. You have a famous byline and a famous middle initial and, and famous initials, JVL. Is, is, is what the V stands for a state secret or a personal secret, or can you divulge it? No, there's no no secret to it at all. It's uh, V is for Victor. Uh, the only reason I use the V is because I have idolized George F. Will my whole life. And <laughs> part of the reason I came to Washington and, and wanted to work in journalism was that I wanted to grow up to be George Will. And so I, when we were setting up the, the very first time I published a piece at the Weekly Standard, uh, I was asked, what, what do you want your byline to be? Mm. And I I just said, well, Jonathan V. Last. And Fred Barnes was walking past my desk, and he, he said, ah, no, mm-hmm. I'll do that. We, mm-hmm. no, John Last. Mm-hmm. I said, well, Fred, nobody in my entire life has ever called me John. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, it's, never, it's never been. He was like, well, and just Jonathan Last. No V. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. So I waited for Mr. Barnes to move on, and then I said, I'd really like to have the V, please. Mm-hmm. Well, the V is so distinctive. It's almost like a signature or, or an identifier uh, for you. Um, am I right that you went to Johns Hopkins? Yes. Why the Johns, by the way? Was that the man's name or is it two names? Name. Or... Nope, huh. that's his name. Huh. So his Quaker first name fellow. was Johns. Yep. A Quaker fellow. Uh-huh. Were you pre-med like so many Hopkinsites? I was. I was. My undergraduate degree is in molecular biology. And I, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. You are a brainiac, Jonathan. Well, (laughs) but I'm, you know, everything's relative. I would say in the world of molecular biology majors, I was decidedly subpar. I don't care. In the world of of journalism, I'm a genius. (laughs) Are you from the Baltimore area? No, I'm from the southern part of New Jersey, the Philadelphia side of New Jersey. Uh Uh-huh. 
And uh, Baltimore is a really a terrible place. I would not wish it on anybody. And I would not wish Johns Hopkins on anybody. It's a truly awful, awful institution that deserves only bad things to happen to it. Jonathan, why do you say that? It was the, the worst four years of my life. Uh, I mean, I, and I say that without... Now, in a way, that wound up being helpful because I have never had even a moment of nostalgia for my college years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end of it, I was, I would say... As, as depressed and unhappy as I have ever been in my life. And so in, in a sense, the, the, the day I walked out of my undergraduate years was the best day of my life. And every day since then has been better. So in a way, I'm, I'm thankful because every day is the best day of my life because Hopkins set the bar so low. So I guess there's that. But, uh, but I, I would say in general, it's not a good way to spend a, a large chunk of money. Jonathan, but you, you must have gotten a very good education, I would think. Miserable as you were, I don't think so. Were your no. were your were your teachers first rate? No, no, the teachers were horrible. Uh, At Johns Hopkins, most, really? Oh, oh yeah, one well, of our most prestigious institutions. Well, so you have to understand that the way the economic structure of Hopkins is set up uh, is that the school was back then. I presume it's probably still the same. Uh, the single largest gobbler up of federal research grants of any university in America. And much of it going to the uh, the physics lab that they have out in the wilds of Maryland, but much of it also going to the medical school and the undergraduate university. And so your job as a tenured professor at Hopkins is to raise money doing research. And you only have to teach some bare minimum classes. Like, you know, I think I think back then they were required to teach like one semester every four or something like that. And so the professors truly resented having to teach and did as little of it as possible and left most of it to the the graduate students and TAs. And so you're just in these, you know, giant lecture halls with 300 kids uh, sitting there, you know, and fighting your way through a a truly vicious uh, curve system for grading, which was, you know, Hopkins was, I, I would sit longingly and read all these stories in places like National Review and the Weekly Standard about grade inflation and how terrible grade inflation was. And I think to myself, oh, it sounds amazing. <laughs> Get me to a grade inflation university. <laughs> well, when and how did you discover George Will or George F. Will, the, the, the forerunner of Jonathan V. Last? I, I found him on the back page of Newsweek. Back oh, yeah. Newsweek is a thing. Oh. And uh, it was the first time I ever learned to look for a byline. It was seventh grade, I think, is when I started paying attention to Newsweek. And I was fascinated by politics and current events uh, and then realized what a writer can do because, you know, he's George Will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I started looking for him then when I would see, you know, my, my local papers because they would syndicate the post columns. And so you never knew exactly who you were going to get, you know, in any given, any given day. Uh, and I followed him obsessively. I, then I started, I, then I discovered that you could buy books and collections of his essays. And I, mm. I think this is true that I have read every word he has ever published. Does he know this by the way? Uh, have you told perhaps, him? Perhaps, perhaps oh. I, I went oh. So I, I spent 20 years in Washington avoiding George Will because I idolized him to such a degree that I was huh. terrified to meet him. Oh, geez. Huh. Because I did, I just thought, you know, if I meet him and he's a jerk, uh-huh. I just can't handle it. And the truth yeah. is the downside of that is much worse than the upside of meeting him and he's a prince. 
Yes. You know, if you meet him and he's a prince, well, the work is still the work and he's still yes. idle. Um, and I, I was seated That's next to me him. a few times. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Uh, I was seated next to him and this means like for 20 years, like, you know, you'd be at book parties and you know, I would see him and I would literally run the other way to make sure that I didn't bump into him and get introduced to him. And <laughs> I just didn't want it. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. So I was seated next to him at a lunch, uh, back in 2016 and, Afterwards, I, uh, I, you know, I, even now I can't recall what happened, but I, I waited till the very end of lunch to even say anything to him. And I introduced myself and I muttered something about you are the entire reason I have become a writer. You are my idol. I, I felt I, it was like yeah. a 13 year old girl yeah. meeting Elvis. Yeah. And, and this ended with him being like, very pleasant and then me turning on my heels and running out of the room literally yeah. running out of the room because right. i was so oh, I mortified totally yeah uh and he then sent me a note after i had written i'd written something about baseball yeah. and he and taking my kid to our minor league team because we have a minor league team a mile down the road from where we live and we're season ticket holders there and he he just said he loved the essay and he invited uh my son and i to come to a nationals game with him and I said, I would love that. And then a week later, he sent a box of all of his baseball books to my son with little inscriptions in each of them to my son about baseball and life and listening to his father. And I, I can't even tell you <laughs> how amazing this yes, was. Yeah, you can tell me. You can. I know. So I finally, I, I went to the game with him. Uh, this is last summer, I guess. And not that, sorry, not this past summer, but the summer before. Mm. And so I, I go to a baseball game on a summer afternoon, like a six o'clock game, I think, with, mm. with George F. Will, George mm. Effing Will, mm. as I often think of him <laughs> in my <laughs> You've referred to him that way in print. And he he brings as his other guest, Tony LaRusa. <laughs> <laughs> This so was quite a, quite an honor for Tony to meet you. Me, George Will, and Tony Larusa sitting taking in a ball game together. Oh, and I, I just thought it. to myself, I can picture it. This is insane. <laughs> this, your life is never supposed to work out like this. Oh. And the funny, you know, this, so this is the most telling story I have about what a what a garbage town Washington D.C. is. So I'm sitting there with George Will and Tony LaRusa. Tony LaRusa looks exactly like Tony LaRusa. <laughs> you know, there is he's got the World Series, the giant World Series rings, one of them on each hand. Mm -hmm. He he is unmistakable to anybody who has spent even five minutes looking at baseball for the last thirty years. Mm. And all throughout the game, people came up asking to get pictures with George Will. Not a single person <laughs> recognized Tony LaRusa. <laughs> What a city is this where George Will is the celebrity and Tony LaRusa doesn't even get people were literally I'm, handing LaRusa their cameras and saying or their phones. You know, could you take a picture of me and, and George? But me, I, I, must, I differ from you a little bit. I'm glad that such a city exists amid the other series, uh, cities. It's guess, like but in, at a in, baseball in, game. In, in, even. Little, in little tiny Salzburg, Austria, that practically a village, classical musicians are famous like pop musicians are elsewhere in the world. Now, I'm glad that one such place exists. So here's my question for you. I did not ask for a picture with myself 
and Mr. Larusa and Mr. Will, even though I was dying to do so, mm-hmm. because I thought that would be just incredibly gauche. Mm-hmm. Was I wrong to do that? Yes, and I wouldn't have asked for a picture either. Yeah, I would rather have slipped my throat than ask for a picture. I uh, agonized but, but that, over it. But, but, I tried but that is all wrong. But that is wrong. wrong. You and I are wrong. I sat there you thinking, and I are wrong. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh, what is there a moment? It, it literally was like being in an eighth grade dance with a beautiful girl again. Like, I didn't know what the right thing to say was. And I was, well, maybe if I do this, she'll let me touch her. That You know, everything about it was just awkward. So did, so did George sit in the middle and uh, between yes. you and Tony? Or, okay. Yes. Right. Did you converse at all with La Russa? A little bit, a little bit. He, uh, he was, I, I was so taken with the fact that this, so I think he's 72, maybe. Who? He's, he, La Russa. He's, uh. he's pretty old at this point. And he's that's been in relative, baseball. That's a relative thing, my friend. Well, that's true. But yeah. he's, but I mean, this to be that he has been yeah. in baseball as his career, basically oh, for I, 60 yeah. years. Yeah. Right. And yet there, I expected grizzled cynicism, mm. and he talks about baseball the same way my 11-year-old son does. Oh. I mean, just utter joy, you know. So he was there. He now works in the uh, the, the Red Sox organization, and so he was there because the Red Sox were in town. And so he was sitting there with us, and he was talking about the, the various Red Sox players as they come up, and he would, you know, say this about this guy or that about that guy. And the the pure joy he had in talking about the different players and what he thought they did really well and how much fun it was to watch them and not a not an ounce of world weariness at all in him. Jonathan, was your son there too? No. Oh. No, this is really so he was away at baseball camp. At homework or something? In New oh. Jersey. So he, <laughs> what else would he be doing? Yeah, of course. he was in New Jersey yeah. at baseball camp and it was one of these things where it was not a long planned, you know, George emailed me the night before and said, can you come? And I said, uh-huh. yes, absolutely. And yeah. Yeah, uh, there was yeah. literally no way had I had even two days notice, I would have driven up to New well, Jersey, pulled him out of camp and brought him back down for the game. Again, I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A with Jonathan Last, Jonathan V. Last of the Bulwark. We'll be back after this word from our sponsor, Quip. I use Quip every day, and I like it a lot. Quip asks you, what actually makes a better toothbrush? Industrial strength power? Adherence to the latest trends? If you ask your dentist, the good doctor will tell you it's less about the brush and more about how you use it. That's why you need Quip. Quip is the remarkably simple electric toothbrush created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health, healthier habits. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses ensuring an even clean. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. The sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. Simply put, Quip makes brushing something you actually want to do twice a day. Maybe a third time, too. So, ditch the gimmicks and grab a Quip. I tell you, when I started using Quip, I said, I'm never going back. Never going back to the brushes of the past. Quip makes brushing so easy, even pleasurable, 
It's almost like cheating. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash QA. This is a simple way to support this podcast and do yourself a favor and your teeth. Again, go to G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash QA to get your first refill free. Getquip.com slash QA. Thank you so much. And get your buzz on with Quip. Welcome back to Q&A, everybody. I'm Jay Nordlinger, and my guest is an old friend and colleague of mine, Jonathan V. Last of The Bulwark. Let's dip into a discussion about politics. And what's funny about the, what has happened to conservatism and Trumpism, so I would say I fell in the class of people like, like Yuval Levin, um, like Raihan Salam, like Ross Douthat to a lesser degree, who believed that conservatism really needed to be reformed and that there was a great deal rotten in it. Uh, and what we have gotten is a reform of conservatism. We've gotten it good and hard. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it turns out that the reformed version of conservatism, while it maps closer to, say, my view of the free market, um, is pernicious and illiberal in ways which I had not realized it would be. But now that I look back on it, I should have thought. I, I mean, Jonah, Jonah Goldberg, I, I credit enormously with seeing this stuff more clearly than I did, certainly. So Jonah was always anti-populist in ways that I found vaguely annoying. I say this mm. as a friend of Jonah's. I don't, I don't mean like really annoying because I love mm. Jonah. But, you know, he, Jonah was an elitist, not a populist. And I, I mm. thought to myself, why shouldn't we have populism? And it turns out the reason not to have populism is because populism is never run by Yuval Levin. No. <laughs> when the populists sweep into power, yeah. right, they don't, they don't put Yuval Long. in charge of domestic policy. No. <laughs> and 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 that this is not like a one-off. What we're seeing right now is not some one-off thing. It is a human nature thing. It's always like this. And I did not appreciate that. So, uh, Jonathan, you were at one time Trump curious. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I was. I and I would say this was this was the begin. This was another sign of my na- naivete. So as Trump was beginning to happen, I, I sat with. <laughs> That's a funny formulation, as Bill Buckley would say. Yeah, I, I the bumper sticker as, as you know what happens. Yeah. And and I said, so, look, here's a here's a very serious question. Is it easier to build a political movement around an ideology or is it easier to graft an ideology onto an amorphous political movement? I said, I don't know what the answer to that question is. But on the other hand, Trump is clearly tapping into something. He's creating a political movement. Why shouldn't? Yuval Levin, I, mean, I literally said this, I said, why shouldn't, why shouldn't the people who believe the conservatism should be reformed and the Republicanism party should be reformed? Why shouldn't they sort of jump into this and take over so that the, the Ross Douthat, Raihan Salam, Yuval Levin view of conservatism can flower into Trumpism? Because Trumpism has no ideological moorings at all. There is nothing there. It just, it is whatever Trump says it is in any given moment. Uh, and so I, I thought that that was a live possibility, and that is a sign of how foolish I am. Um, Jonathan, on this business of uh, the free market or capitalism or a free economy, so Irving Crystal gave two cheers. Do you give one cheer or half a cheer? Or 
I'm 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 one and a half. Okay, one and a half. I think I actually wrote that earlier today. I'm I'm a one and a half year kind of uh, capitalist. I mean, I I recognize, of course, and stipulate too, of course, that capitalism has done more to raise literally billions of people out of poverty than any other program or ideology in the history of man. Uh, it accomplishes a great many goods. The the problem seems to me to be that this intersection of government and capitalism, government and the market, always tends towards rent-seeking and that it must be continually recalibrated and continually re-regulated and somebody has to always be stepping in to try to disentangle the two because what you get isn't really a free market. You know? And uh, I don't know. And maybe that's not possible at scale. That's the other the other. I would say one thing that I think about a lot is the degree to which scale changes things. Mm. Uh, everything from the nature of production to the nature of economic systems to the nature of political systems. And I, I really think it's an open question as to whether or not everything can hold at the scale of, say, 330 million people in an elected Republican government. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it's obvious that it, it can work this way. Well, JVL, Jonathan V. Last, I, I want to know what you read to keep yourself informed or amused. Uh, do you have a media diet? Huh. Um, yes and no. Uh, I mean, I, I am incredibly well read in some ways that are unimportant and pitifully ill read in many ways that are deeply important. Uh, for instance, I graduated college without having read a single book, and this is. <laughs> but 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 you must have learned a boatload of science, though, JV. Sure, sure. No, I believe me. I could talk to you about G-coupled proteins all day long, <laughs> right? I mean, I wow. could, <laughs> could talk about physical chemistry and organic chemistry and immunobiology and all that stuff. Uh, but I didn't read a book, and I I now you know at the time I didn't really think. And you're so about literary. It. You're such a writer, Jonathan. Well, but 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 I, how is it that a semi supposedly prestigious American university can allow people to graduate without reading a single novel? What what? How is that even possible? Read them on your Al, Al uh, Knox said that uh, <laughs> that that teaching novels is like teaching slang that 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 it shouldn't be done in school. It's just something you should do on your on your own time, and a well-educated person should be able to enjoy a novel. Now, I'm not sure I agree with this, but I'm kind of tickled, as we would say in the Midwest, by the view. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that I would want have wanted an entire undergraduate education based around novels, but it would have been, it would have been nice to read one. You know, Brothers Karamazov, maybe, or something. I think <laughs> surely there's a major work that was worth my time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, have, uh, have you made up? For this, by the way, in the, so I've tried. In the years, I've I've tried, and uh, I I Audible, the the uh, audiobook platform owned by Sounds our like beneficent mm. our uh, beneficent Lord Bezos is my source of that, and mm. I live pretty far from D.C., so I have a long commute, which is really some of the best hours of my day because I can't do anything for anybody while I'm sitting in the car, mm. and so I just get to to listen to books, and I. It's fantastic. I, I really now, although here's a question for you, Jay. Um, so I, in the last three years, I, I listened to War and Peace. Hmm. 
And do you have thoughts about War and Peace? Uh, Jonathan, I mainly know the Prokofiev opera. <laughs> I tell you. But um, I, just, I think war is more exciting than peace. Um, I, I, I don't have any thoughts worth sharing. Uh, I can so, tell you that Norman Podhoritz believes, and it's, it's very important to, to know this before I lay this on you, that Norman Podhoritz is besotted with English and English language literature and always has been. He thinks the English language is the greatest thing in the history of mankind. And he venerates uh, English and English language literature. This is all a setup to tell you this. He believes that Anna Karenina is the best novel ever written, hands down, hands down. I and I, and I brought this up that. with Roger Scruton. I said, can you believe that Norman believes that? And you know what he said in a podcast, the one you're doing right now, Jonathan? You know what he said? It's true. It's true. <laughs> but, th- but then he went on to say he thought War and Peace was its equal. So I, I, uh, I have um, Brothers Karamazov is literally next for me. Um, and Anna Karenina is after uh, Middle March on my like, list of, of great works I'm moving through. The late, late Harold Bloom, I believe, said that the two best novels in English were Middle March and Bleak House. And I've never been able to persevere in either. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So uh, War and Peace, the reason I ask you about War and Peace is because I... I re- listening, not even reading. I don't want to puff myself up by saying I read it because I didn't. I listened. It's different. Uh, it was like getting smacked in the head by a two by four and seeing the entire world around me differently. Mm. And uh, the most prof- is that good? Easily, yeah, yeah. No, I mean easily the most profound thing I've ever read. I feel as though I, I learned more from more about humanity and the world around us from War and Peace than anything else. And initially, I was angry with myself for not having read it in college. This is bringing back to our conversation. But then I thought to myself, I don't know that I could have understand, understood a, a blessed thing about that book in college because it is a book about people and human nature. And until you have lived to have closely observed a great number of types of people, I just don't know that there's anything for you to get from War and Peace. So teaching that to a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or even maybe a 30-year-old, you know, like I, I just, maybe you have to wait till you're 40 to read War and Peace for the first time to, to really begin to understand. And, you know, I, I swear to you on, uh, well, on, I don't know what, but I swear to you on my sacred honor, I will probably read War and Peace once every two years for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, it's so good. So uh, <laughs> Wonderful. So you're not spending a lot of time with the newspapers and magazines and websites and blogs and Twitter and all that stuff, I gather. I don't do Twitter. Mm. I don't do Twitter at all. I cut Twitter out nine months ago, maybe. I I praise you regularly on Twitter, by the way, just so you know. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. I don't see any of it. Uh, That is one of the best things I've ever done. I, I, I feel like... Do you have any friends who are recovering alcoholics who sort of see alcoholism everywhere? And they, you know, like they sit down, and have a drink with them and they sort of look at you like, are you, you know, it's only three o'clock in the afternoon. Why are you having a glass of wine? Uh-huh. Um, I feel like that with Twitter. So having quit Twitter, it was such an enormous upgrade to my life that I walk around evangelizing to people and say, why are you on Twitter? What, are you, Ke- what is Kevin this adding to your life? saw me with Twitter uh, not very long ago. He said, bad for your soul. <laughs> it really is. It really, really is. Think about this. Why in the world? I love it. Yeah. Would you go and allow somebody 
to in, just to walk right into your retinas and say something mean to you and insulting to you. Why would you allow that? Why would you give them that privilege? Yeah. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no use in that. Now, you don't have to check the notifications, you know. Uh, you know what, though? One I defy does. anybody to try it. And yeah. the truth yeah. is, I don't anything think Bill that's does. really I don't, I don't important. I Bill checks his notifications, does he? Uh, I don't know. I think Bill's on Twitter too much. Mm. I, I uh, bet you he doesn't check his notifications. Any, anything that is truly important makes it off of Twitter and out of Twitter and in front of me in like a minute and a half. Because I have somebody who will so text how? it to me so or how? Slack it to me okay. or it appears on an RSS feed somewhere. JVL, forgetting Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and other greats, um, w- what is your news source? Uh, I don't have a single news source. I would say I read a bunch of different things. Uh, I like Axios. I like the reporting of the New York Times quite a bit which I know people don't like to say because somehow times, which is this civilizational advancement is bad because Mm -hmm. like, you know, they screw up every once in a while. Um, I like the Washington post reporting. I love the Atlantic, the stuff, the the stuff that gives me pleasure, like the deepest pleasure uh, is the long form general interest journalism of the David grand variety in the New Yorker. So like, you know, when, when David Grant writes 13,000 words about giant squid, sign me up. <laughs> that is that is, all of my pleasure centers are tickled by, by that sort of thing. Jonathan, um, handicap the democratic field a, a bit. Hmm. Well, I think uh, it, which one I'm, I'm, I'm uh, here, here, I'm asking a question and cutting you off like a, like a good interview. Yeah. Um, um, which one do you suppose would be the most effective opponent uh, of Trump? I think possible Joe to know now. Joe Biden, yeah. clearly. You don't think he's passed it and lost it and no. not up to it? No, no. Huh. Here's the thing about Joe Biden. All of his weaknesses, many of which are very real, uh, disappear when he stands next to Trump. Is he as mentally agile as he was eight years ago? No. But you put him next to Trump, who is nearly retarded, and all of a sudden, Joe Biden looks like he belongs to Mensa. Uh, is I he, don't know. Does he make know, things up sometimes and tell like weird stories that don't turn out to be to- totally true? Sure. But again, you put him next to Trump, who like lies reflexively all the time. I just think all that stuff disappears in a way that if he's running against, just pick your generic Republican. If he's running against Mitt Romney, if he's running against Mike Pence or... Again, Ted Cruz, any of the, all of those weaknesses are real, but against Trump, they become neutralized. And you can tell by the, I mean, the, the poll, the numbers are, are very, very indicative. Um, and then just look at the way that the Trump campaign is handling themselves. I mean, they are doing everything they can to torpedo Biden now. And when is the last time you heard Donald Trump say the word Pocahontas? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, here's the thing. So I, I say to my, my Republican friends uh, who voted for Trump and who are unconcerned about the Russian meddling in the election. Mm. I say, look, if Vladimir Putin wanted a candidate to win, right, wouldn't you if you if you could know nothing else, wouldn't you think that that's a pretty good data point And you could just say, I'll take the other side of it. Like whatever, whatever Putin wants. Mm. That's what I that that's what I don't want. And I think you could probably say the same here about Trump. If the Trump campaign genuinely believes that Biden is very dangerous to them 
And by the way, we've never had a situation where an incumbent president is trailing a prospective challenger by 10 points at this, this point in the race. So, uh, you know, I, I just find it hard to believe that, that he's not the toughest out. And I think that Warren is probably the easiest out, which isn't to say she can't win. I actually think she can. Um, but if I were running, if I were quarterbacking the Trump campaign, she is absolutely the candidate I would want to run against. Mm-hmm. Sort of from central casting as a left-wing campus harridan? Yeah, she's unpleasant to, to at least on the stage. I mean, she may be a lovely human being personally. I don't know her that way. But I'd say her public persona is prickly, not sweet. Uh, she is not, does not have a common touch at all. She has a problem with the truth. Uh, and she has staked out two, maybe three really, really edge opinions uh, and stances on very important pieces of policy, which you don't even have to caricature all that much in order to scare voters. So, I mean, all of this adds up to me to be somebody who is uh, who is very beatable if you're Trump. And are you interested in any of the Republican challengers to Trump? Uh, I mean, interested in what sense? I think it's good that there are Republicans mm-hmm. running for Trump. We don't have, I live in Virginia, we don't have party registration. So mm-hmm. literally you just walk in and vote. Uh, when Virginia votes, there will be no Republican primary by that point. There may not even be a Democratic primary campaign by that point. So, uh, you know, I am more likely to vote in the Democratic primary campaign because it is likely to be the only the only actual race on the ballot. Jonathan, if you were a House member, would you vote to impeach Trump? Uh, I would too soon to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if everything basically is the way we think we basically know it now, then probably yes. Is is baseball your number one sport? Uh, it are is. You, are you omnivorous when it comes to? No, I'm not omnivorous. You know, the truth is, I I used to be omnivorous about sports, and then I had children. I remember. And I remember. I don't have. I just don't have time for any of it, and I I didn't even have time for baseball for many many years, and it's only because my my eldest son has fallen in love with baseball. And because he is into it, I now get to do baseball with him. Do you, do you know as much as George will about baseball, do you suppose? I do not. You know, so this is, I feel like I'm, I'm a little talking out of school, but that's okay. Oh. So he, we're sitting there and we're watching the game and the, the shift comes on. Do, mm-hmm. do you know about the shift? Ah, I do. Baseball yeah. now, right. Yeah. And so I make some, you know, trying to sound like I am a person who pays attention to baseball. I say, wow, I can't believe how far they are shifted over there. (laughs) And George gives me this little like 90 second history of the shift complete with numbers and percentages. He's a freak that way. He's a fricking freak, that guy. And, and the minute I got home, the first thing I did was look it all up to see if he was right about it Mm -hmm. or if his memory was human. Mm. And he was right about every blessing. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Everyone. Yeah. yeah. You asked him a question. I did it. But in fact, I think the most recent podcast I did before you, Jonathan, was with George about baseball. And it was like I had supplied him questions in advance. And then he researched them for a week and with statistics and so on and memorized answers. It was that. It's it, and it's just at the tip of his tongue immediately. What the heck? Uh, yeah. 
Um, Jonathan, do you like or just I know you have very strong feelings about Star Wars. I used to. Oh, tell me about tell me about the ebbing of that, the the ebbing away of that. The the what has happened to Star Wars has forced me to not care about the Star Wars movies. I mean, if I if I on the off chance I'm remembered for anything, it'll be for a piece I wrote making the case that the Empire were the the good guys in Star. It's a famous piece. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, the, the prequels pro Soviet union pro basically. Oh, okay. I mean, can't you tell? (laughs) (laughs) I'm essentially a commie. Um, and the, the prequels were so bad. And the, the new set, the new trilogy, which we are now awaiting the final episode of has been so awful that I I have just reconsidered everything. And I now look at the first two Star Wars movies, which were, you know, are truly great movies as like flukes. And it's simply not worth my time to care about the universe anymore. I appreciate those two movies a great deal. You don't like Ray and you don't like the guy with the long face and and, and lots of black hair. I Uh, don't like any of them. I don't care about any of them. This is the, it is, it isn't that I don't like any of them. I actually don't like Ray, but that's okay. That's not her fault. Um, Isn't Ray that hot British actress? Uh, if you want to say she's hot, Daisy Ridley, I know she doesn't do it for me, but that's okay. Oh, all right. All right. Um, but I don't care about any of those characters. I literally don't care if any of them live or die. I don't know what their motivations are. I don't know why they care. I don't know why Admiral Holdo wouldn't tell anybody her plan when her plan was just to like run away and then use the ship to, to jump to light speed and blow up the Star Destroyers. Why couldn't she tell somebody that? You know, like, I, I don't, nobody has an arc. Nobody grows. Nobody changes. Uh, everything is just a, a dumbed down replay of the original movies. I, yeah. I don't know. Have you liked them? Are you? I'm easy, John. I'm the wrong one to ask. I just, I could never be a movie critic. I tend to like them, except for ones that are too, you know, vulgar or or sad or something. I just like movies. I'm very uncritical about movies. It's uh, I sometimes envy people who are that way about music. They just go and enjoy the pretty music, you know. And I'm sort of like that with ballet. I'm I'm undisappointable really in ballet because I just sort of love it. And I'm I'm unburdened by much knowledge about it. Yeah, and I understand the, that. I'm, not, I'm not a movie critic. I just go to the movies and I like it. Uh, yeah, I, so I used to every once in a while indulge in a cigar. You know, not often, like four or five times a year. Mm-hmm. And it was great because it's something I had no sense of taste for. Mm-hmm. So I could be I could be very easily satisfied with an eight dollar cigar mm. or a ten dollar cigar. And there is the problem of taste is that as you start learning more about something and appreciating yeah. something more, it can become expensive very quickly. This is true of anything. <laughs> it's, a curse. Yeah. it's true with wine. It's true with faucets and home appliances. It's true. It's true with everything in life. And so it is, you know, I'd say it's always a marker of, of an interesting mind to be curious about things and to learn about them as much as one can. But it is also that because that leads to the development of taste, it's also good to have some spheres in which you are blissfully ignorant and can just appreciate, oh, look, she's jumping. <laughs> right. Jonathan, I think I've asked this of others. You know, I can think of David French and Sopan Deb or two that come to mind. Uh, are you by, uh, by which I mean, uh, do you, are you, do you knowledgeable, knowledgeable about both Star Wars and Star Trek or are you one or the other? 
I, so I'm knowledgeable about both more so than the general population or yeah, more than is healthy. You're, but you're like more knowledgeable every, about everything. That they... Almost everybody. It is like, uh, like Elvis and the Beatles, right? You get, people appreciate both, but, but only one really owns your soul. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it was always <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, I think for Jonah, Star Trek. Jonah was a Star oh, Trek guy. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. Uh, so I, you know, I liked Star Trek. I watched it. I enjoyed it. But it didn't, I didn't spend time thinking about or playing role-playing games based on Star Trek the way I did with, say, Star Wars when I was a kid. How about you? What, where are you on those? Are you I don't, I, I don't know about either one. Uh, when I was a kid, I'm so old, Jonathan, I watched Lost in Space. You probably don't even know what oh, that is. Oh, I remember is. that. Is it, Robbie yeah, the Robot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, watched, I watched Lost in Space, and I liked Judy, who I think was the blonde. Max woman. von Sydow? Was he in that? I believe Max von Sydow was the no, I'm talking. I'm talking about a TV show, mind you. Yeah. Not a movie. Okay. Yeah. No, I believe Max I'm talking about the father in it. Dr. Like Smith and, and the Robinsons. Yep. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Penny was, yeah. Yeah. JVL, you are um, a superb critic of design. Absolutely superb. Which leads me to ask you, do you do design yourself? No. Uh, this is just, <laughs> I have these eccentricities. Mm. And there are, there are just pockets of things in the world around us that I really care about. And I can't explain it uh, except to say maybe this. Um, I think I have a reasonably curious mind. And I think I always have. And I think that almost everything in the world is interesting if you get close enough to it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so the the business Same of the people. airline industry, right? So mm -hmm. the airline industry, you would think, what is interesting about the airline industry? But if you pay a lot of attention to the airline industry or the shipping industry, FedEx, right? Mm. If you look at logistics, the closer you get to logistics, the more fascinating it becomes and how how the whole system works. And I generally approach life like that. I try, you know, as you say, people, right? The, the closer you are to a person, the more interesting they are. Bill, the, the other Bill Buckley uh, liked to say, he's, this does not originate with him, but he quoted it, that uh, 99 of every 100 people are interesting, and so is the 100th, for he is the exception. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say I have, my mind has always typically worked that way. And so I, I've, when I am interested in something, I will spend quite a lot of time and effort trying to learn about it and yes. round out it. You are uh, a real student, no matter what you say about Johns Hopkins and your experience there and so on. You are a natural born student and it, it's, it's clear in your writing. Yeah. And I, I, I just think most people are like this where if they aren't, then they should be. And um, because the world is interesting, right? I mean, the world may be terrible, but it's also interesting. Uh, and so graphic design is one of those things that you see it constantly every day. Yeah. And you, everybody understands it at an intuitive level, right? When you look at a piece of graphic design, if you force yourself to stop and think about it and you don't just let it wash over you, you can render a snap judgment. It is either good or bad. And once you start doing that, then you're sort of off to the races trying to understand, okay, so why is that one good? And why is that one bad? What is happening here? What are, and then, you know, you start reading a little bit about it and then you read a little more about it. And I don't know, design is everywhere around us. And I, 
I am fascinated by it at every level, not just graphic design, but industrial design. Even there's, there's a great book. Gosh, I'm going to forget its name, uh, but it's about systems failures. And so there is even a, a whole discipline of design about uh, how safety systems work in, say, a nuclear reactor. So you're in a nuclear reactor process. Uh, nuclear reactor project. Uh, how are the, how are the controls laid out in order to force the humans to not screw up? Mm. Like these are design choices, right? And they're they're everywhere around us, and they're fascinating. Why do people design systems in such a way uh, that sometimes it is part of this is about Chernobyl, right? The 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 design of the the layout of the controls at Chernobyl really sort of encouraged people to make mistakes. Yeah, uh, and it was just a foolish design system. So th- that sort of stuff is everywhere, and I think about it even down to the level of dishwashers and <laughs> the, the way that you know the tines are set up, and and the way that uh, dishwashers want you to load them a certain way, and that people you know people who don't pay attention to the way they load their dishwashers drive me crazy. Jonathan, do you have a favorite composer? Oh. You know, I no. Do you have uh, a favorite I pop group, or do you have three? Name me a few. So, so this is like. back when I was. Uh, I don't know if you remember about this about me. I, I nearly went to conservatory. Of course, I remember this about you, Jonathan. Jeez, what you? So I, uh, I, you know, I would say I sang a lot of. I was a singer. I sang a lot of art song and leader. I did. I was sort of working my way up to opera. Uh, and I, I loved all of that stuff. And, and classical music was essentially my life until about age 19. Uh, and then once I decided not to do it for a living, when I sort of walked away, I, I entered Johns Hopkins doing a dual degree with Hopkins and uh, the Peabody Conservatory. Mm-hmm. And it became clear to me after literally three weeks that I could graduate with one degree or I could graduate with zero degrees, but there was no way in hell I was getting out of there with two. Hmm. That was simply not going to happen. Interesting. Interesting. So I, uh, I, I settled with what I thought was the responsible thing, the molecular biology. So I could go to medical school. And once I turned away from doing music as a profession, I never looked back at it. And I don't, I, I barely even care about popular music anymore. I barely, I don't care about popular music anymore. I, I just, you know, I was, I was consumed with this because it was what I was going to spend my life. Who, who doing. were your favorite composers? Oh gosh. I, you know, I like Brahms. Um, I like who, Brahms a lot. Who are some of your favorite singers? Uh, yeah. too long ago. <laughs> I was, no, I was, I made my kids. I was, I was driving on a long drive with my, my two girls this past weekend and we were just letting my my phone shuffle through music for us. And uh, a Pavarotti number came on and they started laughing uproariously. And uh, it's it's I think the reprise of Nessun Dorma, mm. which is one of the, you know, the great numbers in the history of music. Mm. And I said, stop laughing. That is the male tenor you're listening to. Mm. Uh, you just sit there and you listen to this. Mm-hmm. And as we get to the last minute of it, I said, I said, no, look down at your arms, watch your arms and the hair on your arms is going to stand up at the end of this. And the big finish comes and I 
you know, reach back with my my forearm and I say, look at these goosebumps. Look at them. <laughs> and they that must they, have cracked them up. They did. Yes, they cracked up. They did not take it in the way in which I had hoped. I hope they would. Uh, so I don't know. You know, I mean, I listened to all of the, you know, Domingo Carreras, Pavarotti, the way everybody did. Um, I would say my tastes were not especially favorite, um, favorite, favorite pop singer or group. You know, so my favorite pop singer is uh, <laughs> Ramesh, and I share a favorite pop singer, um, a singer songwriter named Amy Mann, huh. who is, I think, the great pop songwriter of her generation, and is the only the only popular music artist who I have ever heard speak, who I am 100% certain is better read than I am. Hmm. I mean, just you, you listen to her and you think to yourself, oh, she and I would be friends. She knows a hell of a lot less about molecular biology. I she probably you. does, but she knows a lot about literature. And I, I would just say you, you hear her talk about her industry and about what she does and she is not mindless she is an engaged person in the world around her and and, and sort of a rock star to boot i would say she has chosen not to be an actual superstar because she hated her life inside the recording industry and so she basically checked out of it and started her own record label back when this was a a thing and i would say that it, amongst thinking pop music aficionados of a certain age, which is, say, my age and Ramesh's age, uh, she is utterly revered. Oh. So it is not, again, this is not a... Now, never never not heard a, of her, needless to say. I know, well, you're, I'm, right I'm out, gonna, you're right outside of the demographic. I'm, 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 I'm looking her up. Uh, favorite president? A-I-M-E-E. Oh. So not... And man, M-A-N-N. All right. She's married to Sean Penn's brother. Funnily enough, who is a <laughs> wonderful composer. Jeez. Yeah, he does a lot of movie scores. Favorite president? Oh, I mean, I go back and forth between Lincoln and Washington, like mm -hmm. all sensible people do. Mm -hmm. uh, right, right, probably right. Washington. I, you know, I get the sense that Washington, despite the fact that everybody reveres Washington, that he's still underappreciated. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read Noemi's book about him? No. Our friend Noemi Emery wrote a biography of him, which is magnificent. Mm. Utterly magnificent. I think she probably was 40 years old when she wrote it. Uh -huh. It's like a lifetime ago. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Washington guy. How about you? Who is your favorite president? Well, uh, there's, to me, there's Lincoln and everyone else. Um, I can see little that. Bit later, Liza Minnelli was on television once. I heard about this. And someone said, who's the best singer? And she said, you mean besides Ella? And, cause that's what, and, and so I think that way about Lincoln. And then, of course, Washington. But, yeah, I think the uh, – I agree with your friend uh, George Will that he had the greatest uh, – Lincoln had the greatest political career in world history. Yeah, I can um, see that. Yeah. A favorite athlete or two or three? Ooh, boy, you and I have had so many conversations about this. Uh, so I, I – I have a deep, deep love of Andre Agassi. So I, mm -hmm. I think tennis is the most interesting sport in terms of personality. Did I you love say. his autobiography, Open? I did. Oh. I did. Uh, I've loved just about everything there is about his career. Yeah. Uh, did you like the marriage to Steffi? Love the marriage to Steffi. <laughs> uh, I loved, I'll never forget. Of course, uh, I liked Brooke too, but... 
I'll never forget his reaction. So after he, after he and Brooke Shields parted, he had fallen to something like 435 in the world. And then the next year he came back and won the U.S. Open. And as always happens, the the morning after the U.S. Open winner was on the Today Show and some, whoever it was who was interviewing him, it's probably Katie Couric, said, do you feel as though, you know, you really had that big drop off while you were married to Brooke Shields. Do you feel as though you had just, uh, you know, just not put enough time into your tennis during that period? And he got this look of unbelievable vulnerability and woundedness in his eyes. And he very quietly just sort of mumbled, no, I think I was putting the right amount of time into tennis then. Hmm. And it I've never seen something that sensible <laughs> from a professional athlete uh, and something that real and human. I mean, this is a guy who had just gone through a divorce who, when asked flippantly about this divorce and his tennis life, uh, was able to say, no, of course I was spending more time on my marriage because that's what one should do. And that's, what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great, he had a, one of his great comebacks was against James Blake. This is late in his career at the U S mm-hmm. open. He was down two sets to love down a break in the third set. He comes storming back by the end of the match. He can barely walk. And, you know, he's an old man at that point. Mm-hmm. And in the post-match press conference, which they're all forced to do, which is a real, a real interesting thing about tennis, you know. So you, you finish your match, and ten minutes after you're off the court, you've got to sit in on a dais all by yourself and take questions. I, I, I just don't want to get fined. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he sits there, and people are asking about this and about that, and he says to them, he sort of cuts them off, and he, he says, "Look." Just because I won doesn't mean I have all the answers. Wow. All I did wow. was just try out, stay out there and keep fighting and keep punching and then hope that something went well. Uh, That's no secret. And I just, man, man alive. Uh, now, Jonathan, what, do you, what do you make of this? His, his father may have been a monster or, 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 or something of a monster. Oh, yes. And, and yet would Agassi be Agassi without that? So, so how are we to think of the father? I think he'd be Agassi, but happier. I mean, this really? Is, oh, yeah. Huh. No, I mean, this is a guy who who searched for. But, I mean, I mean, really. Did, but do you think he would have been a tennis champion? Yeah, I think oh, so. Okay, okay. Uh, do you? Do you not? No, I, I rather doubt it. Uh, yeah, I think he. There are comparable cases in music, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know what, though? I bet he would have been happier even if he had not been a tennis champion, if he had yeah. a, a better dad. I mean, there's, he tells a story about um, after winning his first Wimbledon. So this is sort of a funny thing. I mean, people have projected great things for him, and then he was eclipsed by Pete Sampras and lost in three or four different major finals, and people had sort of moved on from him. And then he finds himself in the Wimbledon final, the the, the major that he is least likely to win because of his style of tennis. Uh, and he wins. And it's a great match. And he calls his dad from whom he is somewhat estranged mm. that, that evening. Uh-oh. And the first thing his dad says is you should have won his straight sets. <laughs> what a guy. Yeah. That is something. Very much. Yeah. 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 Like his fat behind could have won in anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. really. Uh, and for Agassi to be not bitter and uh, not cocky, he's incredibly popular in the locker room. 
And mm. guys loved him in the locker room mm. in the same way that they hated Sampras. Oh, did they? Yes, yeah, Sampras was utterly reviled. Cold. Huh. Totally cold, superior, distant, had no time for anybody else. Huh. Uh, and Agassi was a genuinely, neither of them as popular as Federer and Nadal, which is remarkable that two guys as dominant as they are and as historically great as they are, are so not just liked, but loved by their peers. Mm. I mean, that is, you do not see that, I think, often in any sport. You know, you know, people, your peers will respect you, but they won't love you the way that the two of them are loved by other tennis players. It's really, it's really something. I'm a huge, both Federer and Nadal partisan as well. Mm. How about you? Mm. Who are you? You and I, gosh, we spent so much time talking about Tiger before Tiger happened. Mm-hmm. Because, mm. I mean, I remember, his, you know, the first Masters. And we had mm. spent a year talking about Tiger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was April 1997. Was yeah, yeah. You and yeah. I were under the same roof. Yeah. Who is your Who is your favorite athlete of all time? A favorite? Um, LeBron James, I decided a few years ago, was the best athlete I've ever seen. Um, but favorite's a little different. My favorite sure. NBA player is a guy named Ish Smith. Uh, just because I adore him, uh, but he's not a, a, a star or anything. I often uh, I learned a couple of things from the late Professor Jeffrey Hart, a National Review senior editor who who was quite an expert on sports and tennis in particular. And he there were sort of two rules that I learned from him, and I violate these rules. These rules. The first is um, no comparisons across sports. It's very hard um, to say you know this is a better athlete than that one across sports, and and no comparing across eras. No fair. He said the most a person can do is dominate his own his his own time, his own era. He can't play others from the past. He can't play others from the future. All he can do is dominate his time. And so no fair, you know, Ty Cobb versus, I don't know, Mike Trout. No fair, Bobby Jones versus Jack Nicholas. No fair, Bill Tilden versus, uh, I think his name was Bill. Um, yeah, and, Bill Tilden. And, and, and so on. And yet, I I I I believe in those rules and, and and break them nonetheless. For years, my favorite athlete of all time is Jack Nicklaus. Um, but I think when um, when when LeBron brought the Cleveland Cavaliers back in the NBA Finals from one and three against the Golden State Warriors, I think that's the greatest athletic feat I've ever seen. And it is a team sport, but it was just about entirely on his back. It was just that was shocking to me, those those three straight victories that he willed, including the final one in in in, in Golden State's gym. I, 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 that's the most impressive thing I've seen, until either the next year or the year after when he took the Cavs to the finals and they were swept in the finals. But that didn't matter. That his his run uh, through the playoffs into the finals was um, jaw dropping. And maybe I'm sliding Michael Jordan and others, but I, I, I think that LeBron is the best athlete I've, I've ever seen. You know, I, I missed the entire LeBron Golden State era mm. because, uh, because of the NBA's cockamamie economics. So the, the NBA does this ridiculous thing where you have both guaranteed contracts uh, and salary caps. And what this does is it means that one team that makes a terrible decision is consigned to to basically nowheresville for a decade, right? You, and, and you make two bad decisions and you're, you're out of it for, for 15 years. Hmm. And when the, Ivers, the end of the Iverson era in Philadelphia was, was mishandled, and I was a 
very, very big Philadelphia 76ers fan, a very big Allen Iverson fan. Mm. Uh, when that went bad, it was clear that the Sixers were going to be bad for a decade. Like I looked up and I realized that I will have children before the Sixers are good again. Mm-hmm. You know, and I wasn't even married at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after that happened, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get it up to care about the NBA. If this, if I, knowing that the Sixers were going to be just dreadful for year after year after year, I just couldn't do it. Nobody ever goes from last to first in the NBA. That's not how the league is built. Well, it's sort of me and the Tigers, um, Jonathan, for the yeah. past few years. We were the worst team in Major League Baseball this year with 114 losses. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Why is that? What is happening? In that's Detroit? a big discussion. Um, that's a big discussion. But we went Are they from first to, to worst. I don't know. I don't know. But Major League Baseball is littered with great ex-Tigers, including Cy Young winners, four of them. Justin Berlander, Berlander. Yep. Scherzer, uh, Price, and Porcello. But that's amazing. Uh, not, not, yeah, all Tigers. Uh, not to mention hitters. Those are just Cy Young Award-winning pitchers, mind you. Uh, but yeah, it's a weird, weird story. That's really something. Jonathan, here at the end, give us, give us about five journalists to follow, to pay attention to, to read. Five people to pay attention to and read. Uh, hmm. Or however many you want. I already said, okay, so we'll take George Will off the list. We'll take him. He's, he's, our, he's Ella. Right. Yeah. This is, he's Ella, yeah. right. Besides uh, Ella. Yeah. Besides Ella. Yeah. Uh, I really, I, so I love David Graham. Uh, he does long form stuff for the New Yorker. Uh, he's one of the most astonishing writers and reporters ever. Uh, I don't know if you know his stuff and like no, his stuff. G-R-A-N-N. G-R-A-N-N. Yeah. Uh, he, he did a brief stint in Washington as a political reporter for the New Republic, and he did not distinguish himself oh, yeah. at yeah, all yeah. Yeah. because he was just in the wrong thing. Like, this guy, was bo- he was born to write 15,000 words, you know, three times a year. And that's, that's what he does now. Uh, go look up any of his anthologies. They're all tremendous. Uh, Andrew Ferguson, who was with me at the Weekly Standard for 20 years, is the great essayist of our time. I think that's probably right. Would you Would you agree with that? Way the heck up there. That's yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. Andy, everything that Andy writes is great. Uh, Christopher Caldwell, another former weekly standard person. He's now at Claremont. He has just written a book uh, about the baby boom generation, which is not out yet, but is sensational. Uh, it's really, really great. I love everything Chris does. Uh, I don't know. I think I count Kevin Williamson That's good. That's good. amongst that list. I count Michael Brennan Doherty. I, yeah. I read everything those guys write. Right. Uh, literally every, every freaking word those two write, and I love them. Uh, I don't know. National Review is still such a great place. It's so important. Uh, God, National Review is so important. Um, I love Rich. I love Ramesh. I don't know. I love everybody at NR, basically. Um, I would say NR is pretty close to my my Desert Island magazine at this point. <laughs> um, that if I was going to be consigned to a Desert Island and I could only have one magazine... Uh, it would probably it'd be cl- I would say NR is top three, and it would either be NR or uh, the Atlantic or the New Yorker. Well, give us a benediction 
Jonathan, give us one final thing on your mind or that might cross your mind. Give us uh, one final sort of blurting. One final blurting. Um, mm. uh, watch the World Series. Oh. Watch baseball. Baseball is uh, baseball is everything. And I so I, I am not a hallmark sentimental type about parenthood and fatherhood. Uh, I, I have my eyes wide open about all of it. And I have, so my son is 11 years old now. Um, he is a very gifted baseball player. We have no idea what his horizon will be at. Uh, baseball is weird like that. By age 13 in golf, you can look at somebody and say, oh boy, they, they will play in college and maybe could play pro, right? I mean, you, you just see they just play differently than everybody else. Certainly mm. by age 16, this is obvious. Mm. Same in tennis, right? By tennis, some kids are pro by 16. Uh, it's not like that in baseball. It's not like that in football. Um, those two sports sort of manifest later because there's all sorts of limits that you run up against physically early. Uh, but he and I started going to baseball games when he was three years old. He was still in diapers. And we have a minor league team a mile from our house. Tickets are $5. And so we would literally just, you know, we, during the summer, he would wake up from his afternoon nap and I'd pick him up and we'd go to the baseball park and they'd be in the third inning. And we would stay for as long as he was interested in it. Some days it was a half inning. Some days it was three innings. You know, whatever, because it cost nothing, right? And as he got older, he, he enjoyed it more and would want to stay for longer and longer and longer. And the, the first day we made it to the end of a game, he looked at me and he was confused. And he said, I don't understand. Baseball is over? <laughs> and I realized that from his eyes, baseball was like the ocean, we showed up at the stadium, they're playing baseball. We leave the stadium, they're playing baseball. To a child of four years old, that baseball is just always happening there. <laughs> in the same way, the waves are always coming in. You know, the waves don't stop just because I leave. <laughs> and everything about life that he has learned, I would say, not everything, but almost everything about life he has learned over the last uh, seven or eight years has been from baseball. Special lessons about failure. So many lessons about failure, right? And how to manage failure, mm. which is a really, really important thing to learn in life for everybody. Uh, baseball teaches that better than anything. Uh, how to manage success. How your opponents, the guys who are your opponents one day are going to be your teammates the next day. You know, so these, when you're lining up in the championship game for Little League, uh, you don't hate the guys on the other team because next year they're going to be on your team maybe, right? This is, uh, it teaches perspective in all of these things and it teaches the kids to see outside themselves better than almost any other thing I can think of that is accessible to a young mind. So there, there's my benediction. Watch the World Series and and enjoy it because we won't have more baseball till March. Hmm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A. And our sponsor is Quip, getquip.com slash QA. We've been talking with one of my favorite writers and people in all of America, Jonathan V. Last of The Bulwark. Thank you very much, and goodbye.
Ricochet. <laughs> Join the conversation.